If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Simon Cooper, author and columnist for the Financial Times, to discuss his book Chums, examining why a small group of men from an elite handful of schools so often make up a sizable chunk of the UK's government and the significance of their formative years spent together. Our host for today is Gabriel Pogrund, Whitehall editor for the Sunday Times. And a quick explainer for our listeners outside the UK, the very British term toff is used throughout the episode to describe a person with an upper class or aristocratic background. Here's Gabriel with more. Across Britain, it's no secret that the men and some of the women who make up our elected government have gone through the same familiar pipeline of Eton, Oxford, Westminster. For years, images have circulated of current cabinet ministers and prime ministers posing together at university, dressed in their bow ties and tailcoats, scowling at the camera, arranged like classical statues on ancient steps. Born of these families of immense privilege, it is no surprise that some of these men have risen to the top of the country, a country still defined by social class. But just because it's surprising does not mean it is not interesting. And just because it's happened, it doesn't mean the how is not important. Moreover, it doesn't mean the impact of it is something we can ignore. So how does this succession of prominent people in politics affect the way that they run the country? What did they not learn that impacts on the nation now? And how does that shape the fate of our nation? Very happy to be joined by Simon Cooper, author of Chums, how a tiny cast of Oxford Tories took over the UK. Simon, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much, Gabriel. So Simon, this is not a, um, a going to be a Paxman-style interrogation, and I'm just going to ask uh, if you could just tell our listeners what the basic thesis of your excellent book is. I, uh, I slightly preface my introduction by saying that the proliferation of people that went to Oxford in public life is not novel, and yet the topic is timely. So what made you write this book and what is its core thesis? I mean, the core thesis, one is sort of eternal about Britain, that Britain is an oxocracy. It's run from Oxford. Of 15 post-war prime ministers, 11 went to Oxford, three didn't go to university. And only Gordon Brown, who went to Edinburgh, went to another university than Oxford because the Scottish elite follows a different path. So I'm saying that Oxford itself, even as distinct from Cambridge, is key in forming the political elite and is not totally connected only to the boarding school caste. And then with the current generation of Oxonians in power, I mean, this really came to me and the book really began the night of the Brexit referendum when I sat up till dawn watching TV. And as I watched the kind of leading Remainers and Leavers traipse across the TV screen, I realized all of them, except Nigel Farage, are really Oxford types of my generation or just before. And I thought, I know where these people come from. I know the forces that shape them. I can still see in my mind's eye some of them walking down the street as teenagers. And so I have a sense of where all this comes from. The impetus behind Brexit, I think, can be traced to Oxford in the 80s. And then this cast, the sort of Boris Johnson faction of the cast, has taken over and remade the UK. And that prompted me to write the book. So it's, oxocracy is a permanent phenomenon. And then in our generation. In terms of why you did it and why now, was there a cathartic component to it? The Brexit vote is long in the rearview mirror, but 
I mean, you know, we now are starting to witness some of its consequences. And obviously your thesis, as you outlined there, is that the you can't understand Brexit or the last 20 years in British politics without understanding the autocracy. Why now? And I mean, do you have any reflections on why you wanted to write it when you did? I think because Boris Johnson encapsulates some of the Oxford qualities that I've been thinking about so perfectly, he's almost a parody version of that, that that made me feel this is the moment to write this book. Because it's also a book beyond Brexit, which is only a very small part of the book. It's a book about what these people learned along the way at school and at university. And what I argue is that what Oxford teaches, both in the tutorials and then for the politicos of the right at the Oxford Union, the very important debating society, what Oxford teaches is how to speak and to write without much knowledge. And Johnson, of course, is an exemplar of that. And I'm not totally writing this, you know, from a Dortmund position as somebody who is better than that, because I feel that I too, as a newspaper columnist, learned many of those same qualities at Oxford. Maybe that's also why I can recognize them in types like Johnson and Gove and Daniel Hanan, who were also journalists. And so many of the faults of the current British elite are the faults of Oxford too. And then also the view of history, which is taught at public schools and then at Oxford, where most of the degree was called English history. The view of history is of TOFs, mostly from public schools in Oxbridge, who then run the country, run a quarter of the world, ran world wars. And if you are an Etonian Oxfordian, you recognize yourself in them. So we've had this refrain in recent years, very important refrain from women and ethnic minorities that nobody in their school books looks like them. Well, if you're Johnson or Rees Mogg, everyone in your school books looked like you. And I think that's very important in shaping how they came to see British power. The power of Westminster was the power of their personal caste. You know, I'm glad that you finished the sentence in the way that you did, because I wanted to just ask you something about the vocabulary that you use in the book. I mean, it's obviously in the title as well. You use this word caste, which it sort of sounds provocative, but actually when you think about the word, it really isn't. But you do quite conspicuously use it. Why do you use that word, caste? Is it to sort of jolt people to the reality of what it, in effect, is? Was there a particular thought process behind that choice of word? Because I, I think it does a great job of expressing something. I don't think I've really heard it used that much before. The word caste was very important. It took me a long time to arrive at it. Most of the writing of the book, I hadn't yet reached it. And one jolt to me, I was interviewing Daniel Hernand, who's the kind of theorist of Brexit on Zoom. He was very helpful, very courteous. And I was talking about the ruling class at the time. And he said, well, that's a Marxist phrase. And I said, I'm not a Marxist. And he said, I know, but that's a Marxist concept. And it's not at all what I wanted to say. I don't believe that there's an economic class that pursued Brexit for its own particular economic interests. I think Brexit is against the economic interests, mostly of the kind of money British class too. And so I realized I didn't want to say class because I don't think Brexit and the motivations of these men generally in politics are economic. I don't think they care that much about that. Then I was working with tribe, but among anthropologists, my father's an anthropologist, tribe is not a respectable word anymore. Anthropologists argue about whether tribes ever existed. And I realized that within Britain, if you think of Britain as a caste society, like we think of India, then the boarding school caste, men from boarding school who go to Oxford are the highest caste in Britain. And it's a caste, that's why it's a good word, that you're born into. So you join the caste if you're Cameron at birth, if you're Johnson, maybe at the age of 11, although his father also went to boarding school. And it's very hard to 
enter this caste later in life. You can become a senior Tory politician without being a caste member, as Margaret Thatcher was, as Priti Patel is, but you'll never belong to that caste. And so I felt it evoked pretty much what I wanted to talk about. And that ruling caste, so the boarding school and Oxbridge, let's say, is at most 1% of British society. 1% of Britons typically go to boarding school, about 7% go to private school. But I'm looking mostly at the boarding schools. Do you want to read a quote that you've set out for us at the beginning of chapter 12 that I just thought is the most amazing encapsulation of the phenomenon that you are examining in this book by Edward Heath, former British Prime Minister. And and I'm just referring here, uh, listeners, to uh, the Oxford Union, the kind of debating chamber that Simon goes into great detail on. She says, I think the union does help you an enormous amount. I remember when I first went into the House of Commons in 1950, I felt I was coming home. I think it's this amazing line, I felt I was coming home. He says, you know, he thought when he entered you know, the parliamentary chamber in the Palace of Westminster, far from being this kind of, I mean, it might have been thrilling, but it also had this familiarity. You do, to be fair, uh, Simon, you know, note that every country has elites and France, United States, I mean, most Western industrialised countries have particular academic institutions that produce a disproportionate number of influential people. But do you think there is something exceptional about the phenomenon described there by Heath? The idea we have a country where your schooling and your university education makes the act of governing seem almost sort of second nature or an inevitability. Uh, There are two parts to your question. One is about Oxford. Essentially, do other countries also have their Oxfords? And the other is about the Oxford Union, which Heath is talking about there. Now, most countries don't have an Oxford that has this disproportionate grip on the elite. If we're looking at our peer countries, Western democracies, you know, the US does have the Ivies, uh, they don't monopolize power in the same way that Oxford does. Uh, France has the ENA, the École Nationale d'Administration, now being abolished and reformed, supposedly. But still, you enter that in your early 20s after having had a higher education already. So it's selected in a slightly different way, but it has produced four of the last six presidents. So France, you know, some similarities, but more selection through academic performance than through caste. Getting into Oxford in the 80s, the era that most of these people entered, was not particularly difficult if you're a white man from that caste. You know, it's a time when I think only about one in eight Britons were going to any university at all. So you don't have to have an Oxford. And I talk about the social democratic countries, Germany, the Netherlands where I grew up, Scandinavia, Canada, Australia, where the university you go to is not very important. Selection really happens. The elite is selected after that. Typically, once you start work, You prove yourself at work or you stab people in the back at work, you play office politics or you're just a brilliant performer, and then you get taken into the elite. If you think of someone like Angela Merkel with the oddity of passing through East Germany, she didn't have elite institutions to her name, nor does Olaf Scholz. And they aren't really easy to identify elite institutions in Germany. So you don't have to have an Oxford. And that's also why in the book I suggest that abolishing undergraduate education at Oxbridge and throwing them open for an Oxbridge for all talented people from all castes and society would be better. But then you come to the Edward Heath issue, the Oxford Union. Now, the grip of the Oxford Union on power is astonishing. And it's especially conservative power because in the 70s and 80s, Labour at Oxford was boycotting the union. So it's typically, for much of its history, produced right-wing politicians. Boris Johnson today was president of the union. Michael Gove was president of the union. In the past, Heath, Macmillan and Theresa May were union officers. William Gladstone starts the tradition from Oxford Union to power. So there's this enormous connection between the people who get elected as officers of this one student society 
and power in Britain. And as Heath says, if you've passed through that and then you arrive at the Commons, you meet all the people you knew at Oxford. You have this ready-made network. The debating rules are virtually the same because the Oxford Union debating rules are copied from the Commons. In the 40s, when the Commons was bombed, the Union offered its dispatch boxes to the Commons as replacements because the Union dispatch boxes were, of course, copies of those of the Commons. So it really is children's parliament. It's the nursery of the Commons. And if you've been through that, you have none of the new kid at school feeling that afflicts so many people in the Commons, and especially Commons is set up so that people who are not from elite paths or women are made to feel excluded, made to feel like outsiders. This book does more than remark upon the fact that there are lots of graduates at Oxford University who've defined history. But what you do, which is a bit different though, is that you also try offer some fresh thinking as to why the particular generation of Oxford graduates that run the country now run it in the way that they do. I think it is quite compelling what you say, which is basically that for generations, people that went to Oxford not only happened to run Britain, but happened to run a country that happened to be extremely influential and important. When you graduated from Oxford to Westminster, um, you know, that put you in a position of power over, for many uh, decades, an empire that covered a quarter of the world's land and you know large numbers of its people and everything else but my sense of about your critique is that by the 80s these people who felt like they were walking in the footsteps of these great colonial leaders and great statesmen naturally didn't inherit anything like the influence they might once have done and they didn't have a great civilizational struggle to be part of they didn't fight in world war one or two they weren't subject to national service or conscription I mean, you sort of see the Eurosceptic movement as a bit of a confection designed to kind of retroactively solve that problem, don't you? They created a, a problem so that they could provide the solution in the act of doing so, get their mitts on power. But this is your big idea, isn't it? That there was no great civilizational struggle for the Boris Johnsons of this world to be part of, so they made one up. I would say it's one of the arguments of the book. Look, why did 17 million people vote for Brexit? There are many, many reasons. There's been a lot of sociology of that. I don't really engage with that question of why the electorate voted for Brexit. Many better people than me have asked and tried to answer that question. My question is, why did this elite choose to lead Brexit? And I believe that without sort of plausible politicians from a mainstream party, particularly Johnson and Gove, Leave couldn't have won. Now, it starts with Dan Hanan around 1990 as a first year historian at Oxford. He's aggrieved that Britain is giving away its sovereignty as he sees it with the impending Massa Treaty, sets up the Oxford campaign for an independent Britain. And from there, he creates the European Research Group and becomes its first employee when he graduates. And so you have this Eurosceptic movement starting from Oxford. Also, the Bruges Group, hugely influential think tank, is set up in 1989 by a 20-year-old Oxford student called Patrick Robertson. So these people think, well, our lot, our cast has always run Britain. But now, you know, as you were saying, it's this kind of offshore outpost of the European economic community. There's nothing very glorious in its presence except the Falklands War. It's sort of tame, vegetarian, low-stakes life. And they didn't have a project in economics also because Margaret Thatcher was very rare politician, she was their heroine, but she completed her project. You know, once she was done, you couldn't privatize or deregulate or cut taxes much more and still remain a sort of recognizable European country. Then you start to look more like Brazil or like um, the Republican dream of the US, you know, extreme income disparity and no state. 
they couldn't take Thatcherism any further. And so, as I see it, for the first 10 years, at least 20 years of this, their time out of Oxford, they're wrestling for a project. What are we going to do? We know we're going to run the country because that's the destiny of our class. We have the rhetorical gifts to win power. But what are we going to do with that power? And Hanan is working away in the background. Everyone else has their eyes on the news cycle, but he has his eyes on the big prize, which becomes Brexit. And he gets Gove on board early. Rees Mogg has joined the Oxford campaign for an independent Britain, even at Oxford. And eventually he nabs the big prize, which of course is Johnson. Johnson, the, the great orator or the great comedic performer of his political generation, has to be the man to win Brexit. And so with Brexit, Johnson and Gove finally have their great political project. And then how they get 17 million other people on board is a, is a whole other story. The question that you'll leave to uh, the sociologists and academic of this world. Looking at the dramatis personae of the book, some of the characters you referred to there, I mean, let, let's just take the last three you mentioned, Boris Johnson, Daniel Hanan, and Michael Gove. We're going to get really deep into the British class system now, so um, you, you have, to, have to explain some of these nuances from the perspective of somebody that hasn't um, you know, necessarily marinated in them. The, the three people we mentioned, they're not actually toffs in the traditional sense. It's not as though they've spent their whole upbringings on country estates that their forefathers had sat on for centuries. Johnson's born in New York. You know, His father spends time in Brussels as, a, as an MEP. He sort of has this vantage point on Britain, but slightly from outside of Britain. Um, Hanan's father was a farmer in Peru, which is where he grew up. And Gove is the adopted son of a fisherman from Aberdeen. Those are three examples. And I just wondered if you'd reflected on the impact of that, that these people who have sort of staked a claim to Britishness and understanding Britain's national identity, in many cases, had a sort of semi-detached perspective on the country. Yeah, let's take those two issues. One of class. I mean, you know, it's traditional among Toffs to say, oh, he's not, he's not really upper class. He's not really posh. And it's obviously there are gradations within this class of the 1% that goes to boarding school, which would include Johnson and Hanan and Rees-Mogg. And Johnson and Rees-Mogg go to the poshest boarding school in the country, in the world maybe. And uh, it doesn't include Gove, although he's in the 7% who go to private school. Among the Toffs, as it's been explained to me, you have a core of hereditaries, people whose families have been going to Eton for generations. So someone like Cameron would be in that class, and Cameron's wife is even posher. So you can always find someone who's posher than someone you identify as posh. Johnson's best friend at Eton and at Oxford, Lord Spencer, brother of Princess Diana, I think we can also classify as genuinely posh. So in that milieu, Johnson feels he's a kind of ambitious middle-class striver. Rees-Mogg trying to be as posh as he can, but his father was a newspaper editor in our trade. But still, Rees-Mogg is at Eton. This was very well put to me by a friend of mine who was at Eton at the same time as these characters, and he was from a much more middle-class family. He was a scholarship boy. And I said to him, Johnson's not really that posh. And my friend replied, he seemed quite posh to me. And I think that if you're David Cameron, Johnson's not really posh. If you're 99% of the British population, and you say, well, his father went to Sherburn boarding school, Johnson went to Eton, as did his brothers. To them, he seems pretty posh, and he has the accent to match. And he did a classics degree, which is also a mark of poshness in Britain. So, yeah, these people don't come from the apex of the tough class, which also is increasingly abandoning Oxford, which has become a crucial step in stone. So you see that the junior royals haven't been to Oxford, that you know, the, the, the poshest people in Britain are giving up on that a bit. Uh, Oxford might have given up on them. Uh, might- Both, yeah. 
as Oxford becomes a little bit more academically selective, it, it can't take TOFs anymore. It can't take TOFs without any academic interest anymore. So, uh, so you have to have TOFs with academic interests, and then you get tend to get a few more scholarship boys like Boris Johnson. But look, they belong to the one percent of of the British caste system, and if you think that that's not posh enough, well, maybe. Now, as to growing up abroad, I mean, I myself grew up abroad, and I know what it's like to see Britain from the outside. I didn't develop as Annan and Johnson did this kind of almost fictional ideal of England, uh, an ideal that's divorced from the actual reality of England, from the kind of grimy 1960s suburbs and the being a mid-sized power in the EU. They grew up much more with an idealized vision of England which you can also maintain at boarding school, which is totally separated from the 99%. So I think that growing up to a kind of old colonial or informal empire elites like Hanan did, that can encourage a kind of fantasy, nostalgic fantasies about Britain as it was. So I think that actually is helpful to developing uh, ideas of British exceptionalism, not being in Britain. I mean, I don't want to compare them to Hitler, Napoleon, and Stalin, but famously, these were also all men who grew up on the edge, who grew up outside the center of the empire that they revered. One thing that um, we've not really addressed, um, we've spoken about the union, the style of debate that it encourages, and you say that this is a style which is sort of buttressed by the nature of education at Oxford at least the nature of education at the time that the Johnson did this world went there, which was lots of boozing, lots of socialising, not very much academic application and a general emphasis on blagging your way through things. Do you think that British politics is particularly broken because of the style of education promoted by Oxford or is it just broken in a particular way? It's just broken in a particular way. I mean, do I think UK politics functions better than US politics? Definitely better than Brazilian politics, ditto. Better than German, Danish or Dutch politics? No, I don't think so. So I think British politics could function a lot better. I mean, the way I describe the education at Oxford in the 80s, it was voluntary. You know, you have one or two tutorials a week. Otherwise, you tended, if you were in the arts, and most people were studying art subjects, you tended to have no obligatory classes or lectures. So you had some people like in my book, uh, Dominic Cummings, Ed Balls, Andrew Adonis, who worked very hard, very seriously, Yvette Cooper, who really learned a lot at Oxford and cared. And there were there were quite a few people like that. On the other hand, you had people like Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg, who in the words of Johnson's tutor, he bumped along on no hours work a week. So if you didn't want to work, that was fine. And you could, if you were studying, let's say, Latin and Greek, as Johnson did, you know, you'd been studying this since the age of eight, so you had read most of the Iliad, for example. So if there was an essay on the Iliad, well, you could go back to your school notes and essays. I think Johnson realized about the age of 15, he was bright, but he didn't need to work that hard because his special gift was performing on stage, which he learned, finessed, refined his rhetorical skills at the union and again in tutorials. Because what is a tutorial? You write an elegant, thinly informed essay typically. You read it out to your tutor, and then you spend the rest of the hour dancing your way around the tutor's critiques of it. So it's very much a verbal performance, which is uh, seems to me one of the hallmarks of Oxford. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. 
Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the value revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the industrial revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. You use this word unserious. You talk about kind of the bantering and humorous approach, and but there's a sort of unseriousness at the heart of it. Is that necessarily fair when looking at the comings of, of this world? I mean, you know, I, I was only a few days ago with one of your FT colleagues, Gideon Rachman. Well, I wasn't with him. I was watching him on a panel with Cummings and a couple of eminent historians. I think that, you know, there are people that graduated from that generation that I don't think you could reasonably characterize as being unserious. I know that a few... FBP ears will scoff at me for saying that Hanan um, falls into that bracket. But I mean, 
he, here's a guy who, uh, you know, at a very young, tender age, was actually influencing parliamentarians and built a grassroots intellectual movement that end up, ended up oxygenating a whole kind of political revolution. I don't think people now would dismiss Cummings as being a fool. Is Johnson just particularly contemptibly bantering and unserious? And, and, and what do you make of the idea that some of these people actually just happen to be very serious indeed about a political project you don't like? I think that, you know, that there's a range of people who go through Oxford and want to go into politics, and there's a range of seriousness and unseriousness. I would say that Oxford encourages unseriousness, and the upbringing of the top caste encourages a kind of insouciance. Nothing very bad can happen, especially not to our caste, not so much to our country. History can't really hurt here. Politics can be a game because if you think of the life course of people like Johnson and Cameron, you grow up in a rambling home in the countryside, ancient home, you go to your medieval boarding school, you go to medieval Oxford, and then you go on to the medieval commons, all these beautiful, ancient, preserved English, Southern English buildings. And you think, well, nothing can really go wrong. You know, we're not Poland, we're not Estonia, we don't have any natural predators. So we can afford to play games a bit. I think Hanan was more serious because he had grown up in Peru. He'd seen that politics can hurt that you can have governments that can do really quite drastic things, damaging things. So he he was a more serious person. For me, the kind of exemplar of national unseriousness, and it's not just the politicians, it's the voters too, is the Brexit referendum. You know, whether you're for Brexit or against is not really to the point here. What do we know are the key issues of Brexit now, six years on? It's can you be in the single market while not observing EU rules? What about the customs union? What about the Irish border? What about the divorce bill payable to the EU? What about checks on frontiers? None of this came up in the referendum. If the single market was mentioned, it was skated over. Nobody is talking of threatening our place in the single market, um, said Hanan. So I think there was a national unserious in that referendum. And Hanan was able to give these kind of plausible answers, sort of Oxford tutorial type answers that might not have bared close examination from trade walks. So in a kind of land of unseriousness, the semi-serious man is king. I would agree that Cummings is a serious person. He's also a revolutionary, a Leninist, a man who believes in overthrowing institutions, which I think attracted him partly to the Brexit project. I mean, one other thing I'd add is, you know, this cast of public school Oxford men, they divide between the more cautious institutionalists like David Cameron and the more revolutionary types who don't like or don't care about institutions like Johnson and Cummings. And I think within that cast, that's the divide between Remainers and Leavers. You do say that you don't deal as much with the Labour Party because the fact that the union became understandably uh, incredibly unfashionable um, a long while back in uh, the sort of socialist universe on campus. But I mean, you're just talking now about um, the unseriousness of the Brexit debate and how it was not closely tethered to reality. Did you think about whether to reflect more on Tony Blair and politician whose career probably will be defined by his fealty to the truth or not when it came to a issue about which he felt this kind of millenarian um, revolutionary zeal, i.e. a civilising role that the West had to play in the Middle East and the kind of moral importance of invading Iraq. I'm not trying to make some kind of great personal points about the Iraq war, but I just noticed that you didn't really talk about Blair much. And people talk about Brexit as sometimes it was the first big lie in British politics. But is there anything Oxonian about Blair's premiership? Could you have reflected on him a bit more? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously Thatcher and Blair are towering figures in British political history, and they both come up in the book, but I don't spend a huge amount of time on them because I, I focus more on the current generation of leaders. I mean, Blair in Iraq 
you know, it's a tragic story and it was a huge mistake. I think there's a lot more to Blair's tenure premiership than Iraq. And I think he was quite a transformative premier who I class with other Oxford premiers like Attlee and Thatcher in that regard. But if you look at the Iraq war, it's sold by Blair through his wonderful rhetoric, Oxfordian rhetoric. He can present a case, he can argue a case, which is exactly the qualities that I say in the book are Oxford learned. Blair would have got them from tutorials. At Oxford, he didn't do politics. He kind of had no interest in the union, not all, but like most Labour figures of the last 70 years. Uh, what did he do in performance skills? He was in a rock band. At school, he'd been an actor. So he had wonderful presentational skills. He could sound extraordinarily convincing in a different way from Johnson, but still he could seem more than he was. And so I think that a lot of Britain's disasters, I identify four blunders, big political blunders in Britain in the last 20 years. The Iraq war, uh, which is Blair's rhetorical skills winning the day for a wrong cause. The financial crisis, which is an essentially innumerate political class, doesn't see the disaster of the city coming. Financial crisis, of course, is global, but it's worse in Britain because we'd let the financial sector grow so big and unregulated. Then Brexit, which again, I argue is a rhetorical performance for a wrong cause. And lastly, COVID, where the UK had higher death rate than nearby countries. And I would argue, again, that's an innumerate political caste with almost no training in statistics and biology confronted with a virus, which none of its Oxford training had prepared it for. Yes, I think uh, this talk I was at the other day was at an Orwell Foundation event. Cummings was quite humorously impersonating, I can't remember if it was Johnson or just cabinet members generally scratching their heads, wondering what the word exponential meant at the start of the pandemic. Just a quick question. We talked about Eton a fair amount. It's sort of difficult to falsify historical theories. Does Oxford merely give expression to trends set in motion at Eton? I mean, have you could you have written this book about the school or is your view that Oxford not, doesn't really reflect, but it reproduces and it's sort of actually the key institution in this pipeline you prefer to Eton to top of British public life? I think Oxford has become the key institution. I think in an older age where academic university education was considered less important than just being an Etonian could get you the top job. And there have been five Eton and Oxford premiers since the 50s. I think the power is the combination Eton plus Oxford. And you see that now, you know, in Britain, there's this debate now about Oxford has shifted very rapidly in the last five years and Cambridge to accepting far more people from state schools. I was there in Oxford last week and somebody told me they their Etonian entry has dropped from 100 boys a year to 30 a year. If you go to private school now, that actually reduces your chance of getting into Oxford or Cambridge. And you see the parents of private school kids now are outraged because they're not really just paying for the private school. They're paying for the combo, private school plus Oxbridge. And if you're not getting the combo, then the private school is worth much less. So I would argue that it's the combo that is kind of world beating. And when these people get to Oxford, they meet each other. They meet the kind of most ambitious politicos, especially from other schools. So if, if there had been no Oxford, Johnson would never have met Gove. Uh, Rees-Mogg would never have met Hanan. Oxford brings all these different groupings together and the Oxford Union training and network is key. So yes, it's public school. Yes, at Oxford, but you have to have both. 
An anecdote doesn't make data, but I do remember a while back going for coffee with somebody trying to get into journalism and I asked, um, just out of interest, like a little bit about their life and where they'd come from. And they mentioned that they'd been to a school in Berkshire. I said, uh, oh, okay, what was it called? And inevitably there came the answer, um, Eton, um, you might have heard of it. It was said with such mortifying levels of embarrassment I know in the book where you talk a lot about the kind of fetishization of brides had revisited and the fact that the zeitgeist, when you were on campus, you know, there was this sort of um, resurrection of poshness as being cool. Is it not the case now that maybe this tradition you're referring to has sort of extinguished itself? I mean, there's so much shame around Oxford and Eton and Billingdon. I don't think that you would necessarily, maybe in certain corners of the conservative world, and perhaps therein lies the problem. But in general, I think there are lots of institutions in the top of British society where I don't think you'd necessarily disclose that your membership of these elite institutions in a hurry. Do we need to abolish Eton and or undergraduate education at Oxford, or is our country sort of, has it corrected this, this thing by itself? I think the strongest possible corrective against rule by Eton and Oxford Tufts is Boris Johnson, because he exemplifies so visibly so many of the faults. So you had coffee with this person recently who was embarrassed to say he was at Eton. Three years ago, say pre-Johnson, that embarrassment would have been less. And three years ago, pre-Johnson, Oxford's openness to Etonians was much higher. So this is happening very quickly. And I'm starting to wonder whether the UK is not at a 1964 moment. 1964, Harold Wilson who's uh, from Oxford, but low middle class, working class origins in the North, beats Alec Douglas Hume, Eton and Oxford, and uh, I think the 13th Lord, or the 13th Earl, Wilson keeps calling him. And it's this feeling at the time that Britain has got beyond tops. It's too modern and cutting edge a country to be run by these people stuck in a kind of hereditary past. And after that 1964 victory, it's another 30 years before either major party is led by a public schoolboy in the form of Tony Blair. So there was a deep reaction against the top class then. And I feel something similar is happening now. Similarly to your story, I met an Oxford Union, I dealt with an Oxford Union president while writing the book. A younger man, he's probably not 30 yet, who didn't put on his CV that he was an Oxford Union president because he said it's just a, it, it's just a problem now. Fascinating. I mean, it was once that would have been a meal ticket. But you still have the secret network. You still can say, oh, I was at Eton, you were at Eton. We, knew, we know each other from the union. We won't tell other people about that, but we'll give each other these kind of uh, semaphore signals. And I'm sure there's a lot of that also in less public-facing industries as well. You told me why you wrote this book. Is there any extent to which you feel as though the act of reflecting at great length on the domination of Oxford itself perpetuates the problem? Is our country sort of too obsessed with this issue if we we all shut up about it about the role of PPE and Oxford University and, and that institution and city would we all be better off or does it need to be discussed and dissected in order to be defeated I'm amazed that an excellent journalist like yourself would suggest that the way to improving things is to shut up about important things I, I think that to improve Britain you have to expose not just the role of Oxford, but also the kind of the myth of Oxford. And what I wanted to do in the book is demystify Oxford and say, look, you might think these people, their rhetoric is a sign of brilliant minds. No, it's a sign of having learned rhetoric. I wanted to demystify Oxford and show that these people seem more than they are typically. And that Oxford is not, you know, what it's sometimes called the best education in the world. And how could it be? You know, 
an Oxford undergraduate degree is 72 weeks. That's less than a year and a half spread over three years. I mean, it's a good start, perhaps, if you wanted to learn, which many people aged 18 are not best equipped to uh, because they have other things going on in their lives. So I wanted to say, look, our country is run by a group of people selected at the age of 17, 18, in some cases selected at the age of zero, and they're not necessarily the best people to do it. We really need to find a different way. I mean, you know, you, you could say this is some kind of obsession with Oxford and therefore an obsession with my own past, but I, I see it as a way of, a very modest way of trying to improve the country. I think demystifying is a good word. Um, I did just want to ask that. And I also know that you, this is not a memoir. And you, I mean, you say that at the outset. And there are sort of nevertheless flashes of your time there. I did wonder in the writing of the book if you'd reflected on your craft. I mean, have you subjected yourself to the same critique as you have those in the book? You are different. You're not a Tory politician and you're not trying to tell people what to do with their lives or govern the country. But did you think critically about your own life path writing the book and the advantages conferred upon people by having attended Oxford? Absolutely. Look, I'm part of the privileged group. I'm not part of the boarding school caste, but I'm part of the privileged group with many of the same flaws that I describe in the book. Look, my my father is still a professor of anthropology, and he had been to Cambridge as a graduate student, come from South Africa. You know, he understood education, and I grew up in a home with books. I was a white man, so the path to Oxford was really quite short. You know, I worked hard around A-levels, but I really didn't have to knock myself out. I went to interview where academics were saying to me, what do you mean by that? And um wouldn't you say that? And this is what I've been used to from dinner table conversations since I was a child. So I came from a group, not the, not the Johnson Cameron cast, but I came from another group that had the easiest possible path into Oxford. While there, I didn't have to work very hard. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. I was growing up, you know, I had other things I cared about. And then what did I learn at Oxford? Like them, I learned how to write and speak for a living without always having that much information. And so I found Oxford an excellent preparation for being a newspaper columnist, as no doubt did the former newspaper columnists Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, and Dan Hannan. George Osborne tried to become an economist writer, a Times writer, was rejected by both institutions. David Cameron had a job interview at The Economist. Rees Mogg didn't go into all that because his father had already been a journalist. So, you know, my path and their path are really not so far apart. And when I say that they see more than they are, I'm talking about myself as well. My path has been much less spectacular, much more modest, much less powerful and successful, but it's a kind of mini version of that, to my shame. Yeah, so I guess the quite important moral difference is that us hacks don't particularly uh, necessarily pretend to be experts in anything, whereas you... Oh, I do. I do. I pretend to be an expert. Well, you might. People sort of know that we have to zig and zag between different topics without necessarily having a firm or full grasp on them, whereas you might expect people in sitting in Cobra to know what exponential growth is when it comes to a pandemic. But um, just a couple of questions that I didn't ask you, but I wanted to ask. Theresa May feels like a bit of an anomaly in all of this. She's sort of the least Oxford Union person ever. She's uh, a woman, one, and uh, this is a book dominated by men. And also she's sort of performatively uncharismatic. Did she sit within your critique easily? She was the red, white, and blue Brexit prime minister for a bit, even though she didn't campaign for it. And um, 
she has this kind of amazing story, which she'd related, I think having been introduced to her husband by Benazir Bhutto, but she doesn't really feel like she's an exemplar of many of the traits that you've gone into great detail on. Is that fair? Yeah, there's something accidental about Theresa May. I mean, she only becomes PM because the leading leavers and remainers have knocked each other out and Michael Gove has stabbed Boris Johnson in the back in a typical Oxford Union-style manoeuvre. So May was in the union in the late 70s. One contemporary of hers said to me that she was the person you'd described among that set as least likely to become prime minister. He said she was a decent speaker, but not a spectacular one. And, you know, she's not a kind of um, charismatic figure who dominates a room like Benazir Bhutto. And in fact, the person in the family who becomes union president is her husband, Philip, or her husband-to-be, Philip. And so uh, May did was an officer of the union. She was interested to and attracted to that world. And I guess she learned enough rhetorical skills as to not although it seems hard to believe now, as to not seem entirely implausible. But she wants to be prime minister. She tells someone at Oxford that she wants to be prime minister. And that kind of person, an ambitious teenager who wants to be prime minister, tends to end up at Oxford if they can. And then she's in the slipstream of more charismatic figures. She's not a huge figure in my book, partly also she's not a transformational figure in British politics. I mean, she spends three years trying to get a version of Brexit through that fails, and uh, then Johnson gets his version of Brexit through instead. So had Theresa May never existed, history would not have been different. Whereas had Boris Johnson never existed, I think British history would have been quite different. I mean, on um, Theresa May, obviously the core kind of axis or lens through which you've written the book is class, I think it's fair to say. But you do go into naturally the way in which this subject matter is structured by gender as well. Basically, British girls' boarding schools, I think as Rachel Johnson says to you, didn't emphasise public speaking in the same way. Did you sort of investigate why, even in the kind of post-war, late modern British moment, that that was never corrected? Well, I mean, they weren't even being taught debates at these posh girls' schools because women were not being groomed for power. Because certainly in the 70s and 80s, when my class was going to school, sexism is enormous. So the training of the Oxford Union was particularly for men. There was the old woman who would come through, like, like Theresa May, although not becoming president. But very largely, these skills and, as you say, the confidence to boom your voice through a big debating chamber and take positions that are questionable and to stand there confident that people are listening to your voice more than that they're looking at your body and criticizing your body and your clothing, all these things that make life easier for men in public, that favored them. And, you know, going back, Margaret Thatcher, you know, the most ambitious young politico one could imagine when she arrives at Oxford about the end of the war, the Oxford Union is not accepting men, women, sorry. And so she has to pour all her energies into becoming president of the Oxford Union University Conservative Association, which where May also later finds a home as does someone like Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, this route is very much carved out for men. And if you're a woman following the route of, you know, I'm going to stand in the debating chamber and I'm going to stand for election, that is, uh, it's a much harder path. So in terms of um, the role that whiteness plays at Oxford, was that something that you reflected on or was it so self-evident as to be uh, irrelevant in your overall analysis? Yeah, I mean, Oxford is much less white than it was. And you also see that in the Conservative Party at the top, you have often Oxford and or public school figures like uh, Rishi Sunak, Oxford, Sam Guillemar, who was you know, forced out of the party when it went full Brexit, but Oxford Union president, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, I think Eastern and Cambridge, although forgive me if I'm wrong. 
So, you know, you have a situation where the chancellor and the home secretary and the education secretary and the health secretary and the business secretary are all Britons of color. And so that is really something quite new. Very often, though, they have passed through the institutions. So I think it makes them seem more like Tories, as it were, or more acceptable to the Tory party and maybe to the electorate if they can say, well, I also have an establishment institution uh, to my name. It makes them seem more like they're born to rule and there's still this deference in the British population that accepts that somebody with an Etonian and Oxford accent or Winchester and Oxford like Sunak is born to rule. And uh, lastly, Simon, I was going to ask you, um, when you reflect on all of this, are you full of righteous indignation and anger, or have you viewed this all from a dispassionate, journalistic perspective? There's a fair amount of your politics. I think you could probably guess what your opinion on certain certain key events have been from reading the book. Are you seething and spitting feathers, or did you just think you had a good vantage point from which to write this? I felt I had a good vantage point. I didn't write it with anger. I wrote it sort of anthropologically. You know, somebody asked me if I hate the people in the book. I don't hate Johnson. And when I spoke to Rhys Mogg and Hanan, they were very pleasant and courteous to me. Maybe that was an act of seduction, of course. But I I see them as products of their background, as products of their caste. They were born to be the people they are. And I think within their lights, I don't think Johnson particularly means well for the country, but I I think he, as everyone says, first of all, interested in his own career. But I think Rees Mogg and Hanan probably do mean well for the country. And, you know, I disagree with them about what a good outcome for the country is. But no, I, I see them, I try to describe who they were shaped to be. That's what the book tries to do. And I think Britain should be choosing its elites and its politicians from an infinitely wider net. And then we wouldn't get these people at the top. Simon Cooper, author of Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Observatories Took Over the UK. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Gabriel Pilgrim. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.